Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor spoke with Robbie Collin, who is chief film critic of The Telegraph. Robbie spoke about his infamous Joaquin Phoenix interview, about the practicalities of writing film criticism in an age of copious internet comment, and about the uh, difficulty of seeing so many films in one week. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Robbie Collin, welcome to Always Take Notes. Feels Thank very you for formal suddenly me. after we. We've obviously met several times now. Of course, and, and regularly conversed by, by email. email. Yeah. Exactly. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I think what we should start with is your experience at the Scotsman. Yeah, that I think we should, should start with an apology because I've oh got God, nothing why? interesting to say whatsoever. <laughs> um, I was listening to some previous episodes. Someone was talking about digging up Che Guevara's body. Oh, I've yes. I've never done anything like that. I sit in a cinema and, you know... Well, you're not a war reporter, but that's fine, because, as I said, you're a first film critic, so everything you say will be novel and interesting. You're a first critic. Okay, good. And anyway, every critic is very self-deprecating. Every critic is self-deprecating. Don't you think, to an extent? I mean, maybe like on the surface. Yes, no, but but deep down, very very pretentious. Of course, of course, that's a job requirement. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, some stuff is already out there, so I'm not going to ask you about the first film you ever watched because it's too cliche, and so I'm going to tell listeners now it was The Jungle Book. Well, the first film you watched at cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was your formative film experience, Mm -hmm. and then you went on to, you were inspired by the Edinburgh Film Festival because it was on your doorstep. And then you got your first sort of, was it an internship at the Scotsman? It was, before internships were called internships, it was a summer work placement, I think you would call it. And it was while I was at uni, uh, which was in St Andrews, so just north of yeah. Edinburgh. Um, Where you studied? English and philosophy. And philosophy kind of slanted towards aesthetics, philosophy of film. Purely out of interest, not because I thought I would get a job out of it, because, you, you know, you don't, uh, generally speaking. But no, the the summer work was because every summer in Edinburgh there is uh, an enormous multi-tentacled arts festival. And in my younger days, this also included the film festival. So the film festival would run in August, you'd have the Fringe, uh, the Book Festival, the International Festival. All of this stuff would, would, would be on simultaneously. And so the Scotsman would run uh, an enormous daily art supplement full of reviews of everything across the board. So I came in not to actually review stuff, but to uh, work out where the reviewers were, run the, the, the spreadsheet of what people were going to be filing. So how old are you at this point? Uh, I would be 20, 21, I think. Yeah. Um, and so also, you know, do phoners with, um, with, normally with stand-ups, actually, because they would be desperately <laughs> looking for somewhere that would print them saying funny things so that people would then buy tickets for their shows. Yeah. So you could reliably get a, a fairly good stand-up in print every, every day. And w- were you reading film criticism at this point? Uh, yes. I mean, as a teenager, I'd read Empire magazine, yeah. which I think what was interesting about Empire, and actually the current editor, Terry White, has really brought it back to this, is this sense that as a reader of Empire, you're part of this very inclusive club. So there are in-jokes that you can enjoy, and there are particular bugbears that the magazine has, and, and, and particular causes that it champions. And you can kind of join in with that and feel connected to part of a bigger community. And of course, in my day, when there was no social media, that was really exciting because you would find, you know, I wasn't internet savvy enough to be on bulletin boards or whatever they were called. So, you know, by reading some of that empire, you'd be able to tap into this community, wider community of, of, of film lovers, many of whom were your own age and were kind of interested in mainstream blockbuster cinema. So that was, uh, 
that was kind of formative in terms of the criticism I was reading. And of course, you know, our parents bought The Scotsman and The Telegraph kind of fluctuated between the two. So I would be familiar with the, the, the film reviews and the TV reviews actually as well that were, were running in both papers. And what did your parents do? Uh, my dad worked for initially for British Gas and then for Fife Council. Uh, and my mum is a music teacher. She teaches the Clarsach, which is a Scottish harp. Oh, cool. So w- were they interested in film? Did they lend any of their passion to you? I mean, not really. I think one of my one of my familiar, kind of, not familiar, one of my formative memories of film watching, you know this way that parents will always walk in at the worst possible moment when you're watching anything at all. So like even uh, Pingu, <laughs> so the least offensive, objectionable children's TV programme imaginable, the one time a parent walks in when I was watching Pingu is that episode where he does a wee everywhere you know he's kind of running around with <laughs> no bladder control and kind of weeing all over the igloo and, and you know whatever else the the the, the fishing hole and the, the seals and my mum was kind of like you know what's this filth that's on you know at, at five past four on a Tuesday or whenever it was um so this kind of way that parents have of walking in at the worst possible moment I had um some wonderful teachers at secondary school who were interested in, in film and they ran film studies modules and and would lend us videotapes uh, of, 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 you know, kind of classic cinema that we had to, to get to know. And uh, one of them was, was The Godfather. And The Godfather has a, a topless scene that is about maybe three seconds long, I think, maximum. And so I was watching The Godfather after school. And of course, my mom walks in with you oh, know, a, a glass of Ribena and a Cadbury's <laughs> mini roll at the worst, the worst the possible moment. Quite of, course, of course, you know, it's etched in, um, <laughs> burned indelibly onto the hippocampus or whatever the part of the brain it's burned onto. Uh, so, yes. What was the point of this story? I, it was the idea was that parents, yeah. So my parents yes. weren't kind of interested in film. Uh, I mean, they they would take us to the cinema, of course. And actually, my grandparents on on, on my mum's side was, would would take my brother and I out to uh, to see a lot of stuff um, at the Dominion, which is a great independent cinema in in Edinburgh that was quite close to where they lived. But in terms of that horizon broadening influence, the stuff that I am now very tediously imposing on my kids, that came from teachers rather than. Uh, rather than my what are you tediously imposing on your kids then? What titles? Oh, I mean, you know, uh, everything I like. Uh, so they, they, I mean, they antagonise me about it as well. They're, they're six and four, so they're, they're small, but they're, they're old enough to realise that when I don't like something, that talking about it all the time really annoys me. So the Emoji Movie, for example, which is one of the kind of de- like defining worst, lowest points for cinema over the last decade, mm. without question. Mm. Um, they saw, horrifyingly, at school at the end of term, and came back and they knew I don't know why how they knew I didn't like it I think I'd, I'd sort of they'd, they'd asked to like they'd seen it on the DVD racks in Sainsbury's and said can we get that and I said no uh, and then they'd they'd seen it at school uh, before the Christmas holidays and come back saying um, oh we, we saw that film uh, today that, uh, that, that, that that you don't like I was like what on earth is this so then after grilling them about it realised it was the Emoji movie so they'll go on about the Emoji movie I'll try and steer them towards uh, Studio Ghibli animations, for example, uh, the work of Hayao Miyazaki and Asao Takahata, who are just brilliant, you know, um, animators. Um, uh, you know, Pixar, of course, Pixar, very, very accessible, but incredibly smart. Do you think you'll give them a kind of um, homework list of films to have watched by the age of 15 or something? I mean, I hope to watch them with them, because the thing is, when you have this sense of a, a canon of great cinema, but you're also constantly watching whatever's out every week, you never get a chance to revisit the classics. BFI runs classic seasons all the time. 
and I get along to maybe one screening every two years, which is horrible. I was perusing your Twitter feed um, in pre- preparation for this interview, and I saw that you'd rewatched uh, The Holiday. Yes. And I was thinking, how on earth do you have time to rewatch films like that when you're literally going to God knows how many films a week? Well, that was because it was, we'd had um, both Catherine and I had, Catherine and my wife, we'd both had very tricky days at work. And the kids have been absolute nightmares when we picked them up from, uh, from, from after school childcare. And we just kind of collapsed on the sofa and we're like, come on, you know, bring on some Nancy Myers, basically. Hit us, Nancy. And just needed two and a half hours of total stupidity. To Do you find it overwhelming, though, having watched so many films and having so many films kind of at your fingertips in terms of just choice? from over the years are you just unable to make a decision of what to recommend or what to watch when you've got a free evening say to rewatch something um or do you just normally there's something that's going to be professionally advantageous to revisit so you know you've got in your mind it will be worth seeing this because you know you're going to be talking about it or have a reason to think about it in you know a week or two weeks time so that's quite sad though isn't it it's it's awful (laughs) it's professionally advantageous uh, well, I suppose I'm not a film critic or a critic, but even I feel the same just writing constant culture articles. I mean, this is the thing, you know, yeah. people advise you get a job that's um, about something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, sort of. But then the flip side of that is that everything you do for fun is also work. Yeah, that's true. OK, so let's then go. So from the Scotsman, you then uh, joined News of the World as a graduate trainee. Yes. In and I can remember it how people's faces fell when I told them. Um, <laughs> I, uh, because the thing is, at, at uni, my big love had been the student newspaper and I'd sort of dedicated, I think, as much time to that as uh, as my degree, really, in, in certainly the, the, the last two years. And um, one of the... For someone who has no sort of connections to the industry beyond that... that um, that vague summer gig at the Scotsman that I had. And that was never, I mean, it was never ever really going to be able to be parlayed into a, a proper job because uh, the Scotsman, even even at the time, uh, did not have an enormous amount of budget to, to lavish on unproven, you know, nobodies. So turning that into a, a job was going to be very difficult. Certainly enough, the wherewithal to start as a freelancer, age 21. Uh, so... And you I, weren't set on pure film criticism at this point? No, 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 not at all. No, I wanted to work in newspapers, yeah. specifically newspapers, not even magazines, but newspapers. Um, so I was looking around at the various graduate schemes that there were at the time, and News International, as was, ran, I think, three. I think they'd ran two at The Sun and one at The News of the World. And the idea was that you would do a year at City University on their newspaper journalism postgrad course, and then you would spend a year hopping around News International titles. So mainly on the title that hired you, but you'd also do some work on a broadsheet. They, in those days, they'd send you abroad as well. They sent me to, over to Sydney uh, for three months to work on the Telegraph over there, which is no relation to the Telegraph over here, um, which was joyous, you know. Yeah, um, yeah and so that was, that was kind of a, a way... It was it was a way in, and it was it, it felt like a way in that could be that I could sort of achieve because you didn't really need to know anyone. You just need to turn up and look keen, and that was something that I sort of did as a you know student. So, and and from what you've said about um, your background growing up, I sp- did you feel part of the kind of media? I suppose you didn't feel part of the kind of elite media club 
No, goodness, not at all. No. Which I think a lot of people might mistakenly, especially now as a film critic, which is often, you know, stigmatised as a kind of pretentious job, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure we'll get to your defence later. Um, <laughs> there isn't one. There isn't one, but okay, fine. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try and think of something. But, um, d- but, but um, it, must, you, it must be something you constantly have to remind people of. Well, it's kind of funny because the, the, the thing is, when you come in to the industry via a paper that news of the world. In fact, there isn't really another paper that news of the world because that brand is kind of, kind of, you know, disgraced, you know, for eternity now. So to have arrived in the industry at a point, so this was, I started working there because after the graduate scheme, I started as a feature writer on the news of the world in maybe 2005. So not long before things started to go bad, really, or not started to go bad, but before the badness started to reveal itself. Yeah. Um, and you kind of think, okay, so first of all, you're writing for a Sunday red top that sort of specialises in, in, in sensational, particularly show business scoops. And uh, secondly, you're, you're, you're writing for, you know, as, as, as started to come out in, in, in what, when was it, 2010, 2011? I can't really remember. The paper closed in 2011. Yes. Um, Which is when you hopped along here. Yeah, uh, but you, you, you sort of think that at the time, it was, you know, when you joined the paper, it was in such rude health. And also, you know as well as I do that when you work at a newspaper, the public perception of what it is and who is there can be very different from uh, what it actually is. Of course, you know? yeah. So the stories that will make a lot of noise, be it in the News of the World, the Telegraph, the Guardian, wherever, are not necessarily representative of the general culture of what's in print or the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of people that work there. And... Um, so when everything was, you know, when everything was ticking along fine, you, um, it, it, it didn't feel like kind of cause for concern. But then when, when you, and, and then when the stories came out, of course I was, this, this shows you a good reporter I was, when, when, when the stuff about the phone hacking, voicemail hacking came out, I was like, oh, well clearly this must just be one bad apple. And, um, you know, as, as was the, the paper's defense at the time. And we'll, we'll all be fine because it will all, you know, it will all come out in the wash that we're all nice people. <laughs> and of course it didn't, it didn't. And the whole thing went really nasty. Did um, you ever get asked to do anything you felt uncomfortable with? At the News of the World? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, what, was, what was difficult about working there, which was one of these kind of weird drill sergeanty things that you look back on and think, I'm glad I went through it, but it wasn't much fun at the time was the enormous pressure to be suggesting ideas. And so every Tuesday, Features would have an ideas conference and then the, the cream of the ideas conference. So everyone would have to pitch maybe three three things that they might write about that week. And then the cream of that conference would then be pitched by the Features editor in the main conference. Um, and to sort of be caught short at one of these things without anything worth writing about was terrifying. And I don't... I don't quite understand how why it was but it was and that always gave me this kind of sense that you always have to be busy and always looking out for stuff and I suppose it's connected to this idea that when you've got downtime you should still be thinking about the piece you know that's just around the corner that you need to start preparing for did you ever get caught out in terms of not having good ideas I mean, week in, week out, because like clearly I wasn't a hacking phone, so I had no good showbiz stories. <laughs> well, there's a quote, there's, um, I got a quote from one of your articles, well, you're, you're kind of welcome to me as a film critic at The Telegraph in 2011, mm-hmm. and you said, uh, your News of the World editor said, I know there must be something you're good at, but we haven't found it yet. 
Yes, right. So that was it. I think the, the thing was, when I did the graduate scheme, um, I think I'd showed that I was generally yeah. an able person um, in t to have around a newsroom. So one of the one of the the, the pre-film critic duties, because I started as a film critic at the, the News of the World in 2007. Yes. One of the main duties before then was doing the Saturday night TV shift. So you'd come into the office maybe about one or two in the afternoon and you would basically get ready to write as if your life depended on it at about 6pm when both X Factor and Strictly were oh, being God, broadcast simultaneously. Switching between, yeah. no, this was the days before oh, yeah, live blogging. This is yeah. your writing spreads. You're writing spreads on both shows. Just shows how young I am. Basically, as soon as shows how old <laughs> I am, uh, to, to, to go to press pretty much as soon as the shows were off air. And you'd be talking mm. about the results, the big stories of the night, you know. Um, and this was something that I could do because it didn't re require much story getting nous, but it did require being able to write at speed and clearly. Um, so, so yeah, that was that was kind of my I wouldn't say strong suit because it's not much of a suit but it was <laughs> it was what I was found to be most useful for yeah. I think and then when the film critic job came up there um it was like it sort of makes sense that just to give him this because it's you know he can be depended on to fill the space every week and he can write about you know um things that appear on screens do you remember your first published piece as a film critic for the news world no I don't Oh, that's um, sad. You'd think I you'd have a clip. It, I mean, I don't know if it is really. If you, you I think I have newspapers, I think part of the fun of it is that it's ephemeral and it just kind of it, it appears and then it vanishes. I think I, I think I've kept my first clippings for new for new titles. Um, goodness, what would it be? I can remember the first piece I got published there as a graduate trainee, which was about the the death of the whale that played Free Willy. So it was kind of actually related <laughs> yeah, to film. Yeah, it is. Uh, and the headline, which wasn't mine, was enough to make you blubber. Um, yeah, uh, that was that was the very first piece I had with my byline attached. Um, but and and what about the the kind of events that you had to go to? Did you have to try and get showbiz scoops yourself? I mean, that was the idea. Did you get any? I don't think I ever did. I can't remember. I, I mean. I, it's, I wasn't really that kind of reporter. I wasn't, mm. you know, out at China Lights or, or wherever else was popular at the time, uh, meeting famous people. Um, the the one one of the examples that was held up to me at the time was uh, a Daily Mail writer called Robert Hardman, who just kind of found what he wanted to write about every week and 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 found a reason to write about it. And could pretty much range around whatever topics he wanted. And he is, I mean, he, it, the, the copy was always beautiful and engaging and funny. And something that our feature editor had said to me was, you know, you read this guy's stuff and work out a way that you can do that here. Because that's, mm. that's something that you can do. Um, and it was, so for example, um, again, slightly film related, but not criticism. When the Borat film came out, I went to an early screening of that in the, the, the Brixton Ritzy and was just completely staggered by it and, and, and kind of came in raving about it to, to, to conference saying, you know, we, ne we need to be all over this because it's going to be a huge deal. And so the following day, I mean, literally within 24 hours, I was on a plane to Kazakhstan wow. uh, to write a feature about, you know, the real Kazakhstan. I mean, a, a ludicrous feature where the main picture was me sort of... <laughs> 
naked in a sauna being thrashed by this burly guy with a moustache. Can we find this? No, I hope not. It won't have been uploaded in the archive. I I don't think it's online. (laughs) Um, uh, In fact, no, nothing went online those days, thank goodness. Um, But yeah, so it 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 was that kind of stuff that I was doing. I wasn't, you know, out with partying with, you know, Chelsea or, you know, Jodie Marsh or anyone like that. And then you came onto The Telegraph uh, in 2011 as a film critic. Yes. And what, what was it, uh, what, what was the interview process like in terms of establishing your credentials as a film critic? Yes, so my big fear when the news of the world went down in flames was that absolutely everyone, you know, from the, the, the tea lady up, would be uh, tarred with this forever and would never find work again in the industry. Um, and I think there was a general understanding among newspaper folk that there were an enormous amount of people in the news world who just had no awareness of what was what had been afoot. And Tony Gallagher, who was the editor here at the time, but then, funnily enough, is now editing The Sun, um, he had, I think there was, there was a sort of a general move to refresh the arts coverage here or to find some new people who could, who could do it. And, and so I was got in touch with and asked, you know, would I like to write some sample stuff for The Telegraph? And it was, I think I started writing some health features um, as well as, uh, you know, general features. Um, one about an artist who had uh, had that thing where you suffer a stroke and then you have incredible artistic ability. Oh, right. um, It was a guy over in the States who I, I sort of did a phone with in the middle of the night um, <laughs> and then wrote a feature with. Just, I think, and this, the idea was, let's just see if this guy yeah. can can write for a broadsheet readership. And my kind of thing is that wherever you're writing, you need to find a way that writes, that, that to, to write that makes sense for that outlet. So that would be on a tabloid, you know, you have to kind of train yourself to write in that tabloidy way. It might not be how you might naturally write, but you have to find a way to do it. And then the same at the Telegraph, you know, you have to find a way to, 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 talk, to talk to the readers in a way that will kind of engage and, and, and entertain them, hopefully. And I think it probably, you know, it, it took me about, at least two years to work out how to do that on the on the news of the world, and again another two years to work out even re- close to how to do it here. Um, and then on Twitter is the same. You know, if you're writing on Twitter, you have to write in a way that works on Twitter. It's not yeah. how you would ne- necessarily. It's not your own voice, perhaps. Do you remember any particularly um, stinging editing notes? I mean, I feel like every journalist remembers the first time they were edited to a to a burnt crisp at the Telegraph or or at the News of the World. Yeah. I suppose I if it mean, took you two years to acclimatise, you were probably getting quite, you know... No, I know. I never, I'm never edited enough. I am <laughs> massively masochistic about being edited. I just want the most brutal feedback possible. Oh, because, really? Yeah, Still? But now, yeah. surely, and actually something, you don't the, need the it. The only way... No, no, I, I massively do. Um, I don't know if you've just been kind or not, but no, everyone everyone needs to be edited. As many eyes as possible on, on, on every word can only help. Um, but and actually, something I do that is incredibly tiresome for my, my wife is that if I've got a big piece that I'm really kind of desperate is as good as it can be. I'll ask her to read it aloud um, in order to hear what it sounds like because you right. hear how awful your own writing is very, very clearly <laughs> God, when someone else is reading it to you. But no, but it's good because that's nobody else sees it and then you can change it. And then I had you to do that at university in our tutorials and it, at that, I think it would be too... Right, I mean, it's traumatising. <laughs> but everything, about, everything in life is traumatising. You know, you just need to kind of... Find a way to be traumatised on, on a micro scale okay, rather than a macro scale. But you so. wouldn't be rewritten now. I mean, obviously, I know this because I'm on the other side. But, but I look, mean, if there was ever anyone thought 
we should rewrite this. I would hope someone would tell me because yeah. I uh, just please bring bring on the notes. You know, as as, as I want stuff to be as pulverized and trodden on as, <laughs> as, as possible because it only ever helps yeah even if you think it's not helping you know you get the email and you're like blah, 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 yeah. it's disgraceful blah, blah, blah. and then you read it and you're like these are the most obvious things to improve this copy come on you know just sit down do this make it readable and then get over yourself wise words there for young journalists when you started at the Telegraph, you said that you you were kind of unbribable in terms of opinion. You know, people would never be able to persuade you to write about a film in a certain way because um, nobody in the film industry likes you. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why were you certain of that? And how temp how is that a problem in film critic circles of being kind of too chummy with the film industry? Well, I think I probably wrote that then because I'd been working on a Red Top newspaper and it would be difficult if not impossible to get interviews with uh film stars into you know in, into the news of the world because why on earth would they want to talk to them because mm. you know there's someone else probably listening to the <laughs> private messages at the time little did i know <laughs> you barely need the um, interview but the thing is and and the th what was funny about being a film critic on a tabloid and particularly then was that they just kind of when the copy came in providing the pages were filled every week they really couldn't care less what I wrote. And towards the end, it was getting... I mean, some of it was quite abstract. And so I remember there was there was one review I wrote, an iambic pentameter, just, just to, to see, you know, to see if it could be done. Um, so you just kind of be a bit silly with it. And then no, either people wouldn't notice or like... Did, and no one noticed? Actually, that one I got a, 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 what was called a herogram from the editor for, um, which was lovely. But... Um, it, you know, you just kind of find ways to, to make the job more interesting. Um, and um, so there was this sense that, you know, you could just do whatever you liked. And they let me lead on whatever film I liked. There was never, ever a sense that you, because it was all part of the Murdoch Empire that you had to kind of give Fox Films an easy ride, which was great. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I suppose maybe I didn't state it outright, but this sense that I was this little kind of solo weird, like, you know, on the planetary scale the kind of neptune or pluto orbiting the uh the, you know the, the the solar system of film criticism that that's the position i felt like i was in at the time now perhaps when i moved up to the telegraph that made me uranus right <laughs> so um to you know to to, to kind of phrase so um yeah this 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 idea that still i was someone who's kind of on the outside of the of, of, of the business um but you don't feel like that now I don't feel like I'm on the outside. I, I don't feel like I'm sort of beholden to give anyone any nice reviews. I mean, I don't socialise with directors. I sometimes, I mean, I and you talk think to them important? more in, in terms of interviews. And But I don't really think directors obsess about critics in the way that critics sometimes believe they do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I know, I know some directors do read reviews and have a sense of who likes them and who doesn't. But one of the great things about being at the Telegraph is there are two critics, is myself and, and, and Tim Roby. So if one of us has some big war of attrition going on, I can't even think off the top of my head if, if there is one, but one that we're maybe not aware of, but would get us red penned by someone's rep. So say uh, we'd written disobligingly about someone's last film and then it came time to interview them next time around, uh, the rep might not bother approaching me. They would approach We've Tim We've had this instead. before with... Um Anya Taylor-Joy and her film. Yeah, wow. Okay, so we're really lifting the curtain on this. <laughs> Fine. Anya Taylor-Joy, who is a phenomenally talented up-and-coming actress. I mean, just staggeringly great. Uh, the Witch. 
Which was her debut first film she'd ever been in. I mean, an insane first performance. Uh, and she's in she's in Edgar Wright's new film as well, right? Yeah. Is she, is she, yeah. she is. Or something uh, in Last Paris. Last Night in Soho. Like, oh, in Soho, yeah. that's it, yeah. Um, so, and Thoroughbreds was brilliant. Yeah, right, okay, okay. So everyone is allowed, you know, one, two... They're allowed as many bad films as they like. Goodness, yes. Adam Sandler makes nothing but bad films. <laughs> but then on a very rare occasion, he makes a good one, like Uncut Gems, which is one of the most incredible films I've seen in, in years. Uh you you know goodness you don't hold a, hold she's, a weird she's kind of 24 or something. this, is, this yeah. is you know you have to write about the performance that it is I think Adam Sandler is one of the best actors working today it's just he never mm. kind of um, he very rarely exploits the extraordinary talent that he has now so okay so that's an example of someone who is who's at the very other end of the scale Annie Taylor Joy on the other, you know has been in a lot of very good stuff but she was in she did a voice in the Playmobil film yeah. which was awful yes. I mean awful. What, her voice specifically? No, 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 film? the film was but, awful. There, yeah. There's nothing wrong with her voice at all. She was just part of a dismal kind of unsalvageable project. And because I, I'd written disobligingly about that, this is okay to say, is it? I think so. Okay, fine. I mean, what do you I think? I was red-penned yeah. from talking to her. I don't know if it was thought that I might suddenly bring up in the middle of an interview, oh, that Playmobil film was a bit rubbish, which of course I wouldn't. You know, yeah. Because what what line is there to be gleaned from that? But does that happen a lot that people are don't allow you to interview stars because of probably? <laughs> I mean, I don't hear about it. I just yeah. I just hear, you know, oh sorry, the schedule hasn't worked out. Um, you know, they will have reasons. I'm sure. Do you feel pressure then, as a journalist, sometimes to not be as scathing as you might like to be because you actually think it might just hamper? Is that the right word? Hinder. Yeah, no, sure. Hinder, hinder future. Hinder, hinder future interviews, which the editors at Telegraph need you to do. Yeah, I mean, what, <laughs> I think what you learn quite quickly as a critic is that if you are pointlessly like baroquely scathing about a film, yeah. it's it's vanity, and which is quite tempting because it's easier to write negative stuff, right? I th- find. Well, people think that, but it's, it's it's hard to write entertainingly negative stuff, and you read a lot of there's an there was a really really good pan of Jack Whitehall at the O2. Or some enormous kind of cavernous night. venue that the Guardian ran. The yes, other day. they gave one star to yeah. Jack Whitehall. Now that was a great one star review, but it wasn't great because it was just like raving about how bad this guy was. It was great because it was insightful. And you read it and you were like, Yes, this is exactly I mean, I'm I'm not a great fan of his work. Um I'm not sort of, you know, uh dwelling on him or anything. Yeah. But but I'm not an enormous fan of his stand up. And the review was satisfying because you read it and you're just like, yes, 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 yes. This is exactly what my problem is with this, with this material. Um, so writing that kind of stuff is very satisfying, but just raving blindly about things. And I think this kind of came into criticism via uh, an excellent writer, Charlie Brooker, who kind of made it his stock and trade in The Guardian's, uh, was it Screen Burn, the TV columns mm. that he, he did in the kind of late 90s and early early noughts of, of coming up with these kind of deranged descriptions like kind of psychotic borderline psychotic descriptions of how much he he would dislike stuff and it was perfect tv criticism for the the era in which big brother was in the ascendant because it was just this kind of flat out misanthropic exasperation at how tv was and how how it should be and how how it all the things it wasn't doing that it should be doing and all the things it was doing that it shouldn't be and charlie booker's tv columns were just fantastic but they made a lot of people think that writing in that way was easy and worthwhile if you could just be horribly nasty about something. 
And you saw it coming up again and again, people trying to emulate the Brooker style and just failing horribly. And I think that's where this idea that being nasty about something is easy uh, came from, certainly recently. Yeah. I think, yeah, being nasty about something is easy, but being entertainingly nasty about something is incredibly difficult. Um, so anyway, that's a very, very long-winded way of saying that when you <laughs> uh, get worked up into a froth about something you're really writing it for your own benefit above anyone else's and it's incumbent i think it's incumbent on a critic to to actually think about what's wrong with this why is it not working not just how how kind of deranged can i sound about it because also that's a kind of a one-trick thing if you if you make your stall as a critic i am the person who gets psychotic about you know um period drama then are people really going to put much stock in anything you have to say? I mean, for the thing is, for the whole Charlie Brooker thing, it worked because of the very, very specific time he was writing about television. And another person who was outstanding at this is Ali Ross on The Sun, who just got the kind of, that sort of sense of uh, disbelief and exasperation that you would feel pre-streaming era you would collapse on the city after a very hard days at work. You a hard day at work. You would just want to be kind of uh, entertained, uh, satisfied, you know, fulfilled in some in some kind of very easy way by television, and you would be met with this kind of parade of idiocy. And Ali Ross and Charlie Brooker were both just brilliant at, at nailing that particular experience. Um, but I think now, and particularly with the advent of streaming. It's it's a critic's job not to just moan about what's been kind of put in front of them, but to find stuff that's worth getting excited about and point the readers towards it. So, you know, there's a there's a film on Netflix this Friday called Atlantics, which was at Cannes earlier oh, this year about the Syrian ghost by Matty Diop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a, an outstanding film. Um, Senegalese um, rather than Syrian. Um, yes. But yeah, uh, so a. Uh, Part of my job now, Tim covered that at Cannes and rightly um, identified it as a knockout in, in, in the first press screening, which is which is a, an enormously satisfying thing to do in this job is to kind of <laughs> see something that's small and that nobody knows anything about and just go, yes, this is this is kind of what bringing, you know, telling people to go and watch this is, 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 is the best thing this job can be about. Uh, so so Tim was one of the few people at Cannes who, who just completely nailed that review. And um, so he's he's obviously that's his baby now, and he's he's writing about it for for Friday's paper, I think. Um, but you know that's now that's what critics should be doing. They shouldn't just be because what else is big that's out this week? Actually, Knives Out is the big one this week, which is also fantastic. Um, but you know, say it was say it was the Emoji Movie, for example, to just you know pluck a, pluck an example of the, the decade's worst from the ether <laughs> you really um, hate that film i do no intensely um and um you know i would want to make sure that review of that was as funny as it could be but i wouldn't want it to kind of labor to labor the point that this was you know the state of cinema in 2019 because it's not it's like one strand of it have you ever had directors or screenwriters or even actors reach out to you and tell you you've got it wrong and try and not even just criticize you but open a, a discussion about it with you about their own work Yes. I don't think so. I mean... There must have been a super pompous director that's uh, <laughs> trying to change your mind. Well, there was there was one slightly bizarre thing when we were writing about films that were shot or presented as one take, which suddenly became weirdly topical because 1917, the Sam Mendes film, mm. which is presented as being in two takes, is out... Um, 
well, it's out in January, but it's just the review embargo was was lifted last night. Um, so, so this this kind of sense that you can you can do these incredible sort of pieces of showmanship where you can make a film look like it was it was shot in a minimal number of of of, of, of shots. You know, these kind of incredibly serpentine, confusing camera movements. Uh, that, that take an enormous amount of choreographing and, and can be digitally stitched together to make it look as if you're constantly immersed, having this unbroken experience of the action of the film. Um, that suddenly became very possible with the advent of digital technology because you didn't have to change film magazines every you know ten minutes or something. You could you could just shoot and shoot and shoot until the memory card was full up. So you had like director Alexander Sokharov, um, which I think was the first the first single take film Russian Ark in two thousand and two i think he he made that and it was at venice and everyone got very excited about it and so i wrote a piece about single take films and a director called mike figgis uh posted a link to it, i think on on facebook which i'm not on but it was as you know this way that friends do they yeah. draw your attention towards when you're being slagged off on some social media yeah, platform you're not on and said oh look this guy's having a pop and i think figgis's complaint was that he'd made a film called time code prior to russian arc uh, in which the film, the, the the screen was segmented into four quarters, and each quarter showed a uh, showed a, a, a its own separate unbroken take, and that you know this ignorant you know know nothing that the Telegraph had asked to write this article hadn't bothered to mention time code. Now the reason I'm perfectly aware of time code's existence, the reason I'd mention it is because by its nature, it's four takes. It's not one take. Mm. They're all playing out simultaneously, which is interesting in a, in and of itself. But it's not a film that's presented as having been shot in a single take. Uh, so that was kind of irritating, but I didn't kind of take it up with them because a lot of that, you know, the, 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 when you make films and sort of, you know, every everything that you do is the culmination of what I mean, possibly upwards of, you know, anything from like two to twenty years of effort. Edward Norton's new film that's out in a, in a couple of weeks is uh, he he spent twenty one years making, which is insane. Um, of course, you're going to feel personally stung mm. if if you if if you sense it's been overlooked or not fully appreciated i don't care if people don't like what i write because i'm writing something else you know it's, this is as i say one of the enormously satisfying things about this job is that nothing matters for more than 24 hours and you're just on to the next piece you know on to the next piece yeah especially within uh, you're writing for the heat of the moment constantly and if a review isn't unless a rev- unless so say, say something like that you you you're tasked with writing a review of a film that you know is going to be one of your favourites of the year. Uh, for example, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I had, I think, 45 minutes to write that review after the Cannes press screening finished. And tomorrow's edition of The Telegraph, the next day's edition of the paper, went to bed, the print edition. And I knew when writing it that this was not the best that I could do on this film. It was the quickest I could do, mm. in, you know, in the, given the, the circumstances. But then the great thing about that is that when the it, the, the time comes around for the UK release, you can revisit it. Yes, you know, you've true. had time to think about it. You've had time to let the, the the ideas in the film breathe a little bit. The performances kind of you know you've reflected on, so you can do justice to it. And then in print, we ran a review that I was very content with for the for the actual UK release when people are going to be seeing the film and then either looking up the review or reading the review and then seeing the film off the back of it. How many films are you seeing a week? I mean, probably never less than four. But in yeah. a busy week, so during a festival, you can see maybe four a day. So, and without breaks of the weekend. Have you accidentally ever, have you ever accidentally fallen asleep during a screening? Uh, 
No, but <laughs> I have never one for work. I mean, I've fallen asleep on the sofa um, many times. But what I have done is, I mean, normally when you go into a film that is mission critical, e.g. something by Tarantino at a festival, the adrenaline just I carries can you through it. Yeah. You know? um, and you have to think, like strategize. It sounds so silly, but you have to strategize about eating and caffeine and making sure that you're going to be going into these things with energy. And, Especially uh, when you have to do it. How long was a standing ovation at the end? Oh, well, that never doesn't happen in the critics' screenings. That's in no. the premiere. That's, that's, that's but do you go the to these as well? No, very rarely. Oh, I really? mean, it's, it's, it's normally the critics' screenings I'd be in, which are the fun ones because at festivals, those are the ones yeah. people walk out of, storm out of, you know, yell, boo, uh, which is lovely, and that's all part of the So, the So critics will never clap? I mean... Oh, goodness, I clap all the time at films you I've do. enjoyed. Oh, um, I remember you saying recently that you and Tim were clapping at... Um, uh, under my skin. Ah, no, no, no. So this was no. It wasn't. It wasn't Tim and I. It was. It was Suzanne Brooks from the the Observer and oh, yes. um and 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 me. This was under the under the skin. Under Jonathan Glazer film. Yes. It was, this was at Venice in two thousand and thirteen, and was just one of those kind of uh, lifetime, you know, great film watching experiences. Under the skin, I think probably is the best film of the the last ten years. Probably. Uh, and I'll need to decide fairly sharpish because I've got to submit a top five uh, by the end of the week. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, I think, part of the part of being in the in the first ever screening of a film. There's a great pleasure in seeing how its its initial audience receives it, and it, the, the, that audience is not always right. So the the, the initial response to Under the Skin was was mainly booing. I mean, Zan and I were were clapping away like kind of uh, seals waiting for fish because we just were so completely delighted. It by is it. a very strange film. It is strange, yeah, and I think it's it's kind of the, there's a. Britishness to it that's not overt, but that um, a European audience might not have fully appreciated. In an exciting development for Always Take Notes, we're welcoming the show's first sponsor, the Faber Academy Creative Writing School. The school's flagship writing a novel course is now in its 10th year and in that time has produced more than 100 published authors. Alumni include S.J. Watson, whose Before I Go to Sleep became a huge bestseller and was made into a film, Rachel Joyce, author of The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, and Renee Knight, who wrote Disclaimer. The six-month writing a novel programme will be running again from January to June 2020. The application deadline is the 31st of December this year. The programme is based at Faber's headquarters in Bloomsbury in London, and the course is available in two forms, an evening programme involving one evening class per week and one Saturday per month alongside a daytime variant, which is one morning per week, plus an afternoon once per month. The workshops cover everything from the first conception of an idea through to getting words on a page, narrative structure and style and rewriting. There's also the opportunity to present your work to literary agents and to learn how to navigate the choppy waters of the publishing industry. To apply, go to faberacademy.co.uk and submit a 1,000 word writing sample along with an application letter. Always Take Notes listeners can receive a £250 discount by using the code Always Take Notes 2019. Has there been a film that you have reviewed that you've then uh, decided or realised you were wrong about in your review? Normally, yeah, if you have a change of heart, it's normally because you've not been generous enough the first time round. 
because I think there's a critical instinct to sound a note of caution when you see something. Now, this often with me will happen with kids' films, weirdly, animations particularly, because I think it's hard to... If you have kids, you watch these films time and time and time again, and it's only on you know the 10th, 11th rewatch that you start to really see if these things hold up in the way that they, they have to. And so Moana is a really good example. Um, I saw Moana, I thought the songs were fantastic, the animation was beautiful, and for some reason landed on four stars rather than five in the review. And it just, I suppose it was because the when reading it back, it didn't sound quite as kind of effusive and electrified as, as you want five-star copy to, to read. But, I mean, come on, Moana is amazing. And it, it, only after having watched it time and again with my kids and you know, it, particularly Moana landed at a funny time for, for, for me because uh, it was the first film our eldest kid, who's six, uh, cried at, um, was was moved by. I mean, he wasn't scared by it. He was moved by, the you know, her coming home to her parents yeah. at the end after having saved the day. And um, we watched it, uh, maybe the first five watches of Moana, he just kind of watched the ending as a happy ending. And then on the sixth, uh, he suddenly started sobbing away. Uh, and, of course, I sob every time uh, because I <laughs> sob at everything, basically. Um <laughs> But yeah, so this idea that you were watching, and you know, you can see, you can see, this was the precise moment at which your son realised he could experience empathy. That in itself brings a whole new dimension to it. But you know, the, the film is obviously that's nothing to do with with my kid. That, that's to do with the film, and the film has that special power. So often with family films, you only really realise how great they are after uh, after a few sits with them. Uh, the new Shaun the Sheep film as well. Mm. I mean, the, the perfection of. Uh, the the slapstick in that is something that you know if you can that can you can miss that on a first encounter. So yeah, it's always it, it's a case of not feeling you were generous enough. I think it's it's very rare. I can't think of a single instance where you see a film, enjoy it, and then go back to it and think actually that was rubbish. Um, yeah, there's there's no there's no case of that. And 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 normally it would be the move that you would make is from four stars to five. Yes. And now let's talk a bit about your celebrity interviews. Of course, yes. you do all, you know, you're interviewing A-list actors, I'd say, every month for review. Yeah, something like that. And then directors as well. And directors, to, exactly. In, in, in the gaps, yeah. Um, I know this is a very tricky question and I find it really difficult when people ask me, what has been your favourite interview? Do you know, it's, it's very hard to say. I think often the, the favourite ones don't necessarily mesh up with the the most famous people however there was one i interviewed warren Beatty for uh rules don't apply his last film as as a director and 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 and, uh, and, and, and star of course uh, he played hard hughes in that um and warren Beatty. i mean warren Beatty has this kind of talismanic position in in cinema because he was he was a kind of the connective tissue between the old studio, the Golden Age studio star system, under which he was hired, you know, as a, as a contract player. And then also the new Hollywood, the era of the, the you know, the big eagles and the otter-driven projects and the, you know, difficult, ambitious filmmaking that was kind of led to, uh, you know, Coppola, Scorsese and what have you. Warren Beatty, by being the star of Bonnie and Clyde, was kind of at the exact transitional point of that. And, you know, he is someone whose little black book is like, uh, you know, the kind of ultimate private Wikipedia of all of Hollywood. You know, he just knows everyone and knows everything about everyone. So the the chance to sit down with this guy, and particularly to talk to him about a film about Howard Hughes, who's this enormous figure from 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 early Hollywood, was really exciting. And um, I prepared, you know, 
myself to insanity and back for that interview. And it was a great experience because he is a um, a great talker. Now, after having finished the interview, as sometimes happens at the end, you know, the person will say, oh, you know, really enjoyed that. Um, you know, give your contact details to, to the PR and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll let's stay in touch. And that kind of thing, you always think it's like, as a critic, you always think it's like the kind of buttering you up on yeah. the way out because they want to, you know, um, make a journalist feel good about the, the, the person. But what actually happened, that interview took place just before Easter. No, when was it? It was maybe a couple of years ago. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, my mobile rang at about half ten in the morning um, with an un- unrecognised number. So I picked up and said, hi, who's this? Hi, it's Warren. And he just phoned back for another chat. And so we spoke for like another hour or so for on the, the piece. phone. Well, sort of. But I think he just, he, he's someone who likes to talk. Um, That's amazing. And so, the, you know, that was, that was incredibly satisfying because, you know, and I think he, this isn't like special treatment for me. It's something that he tends to do. It's he's just someone who likes to talk. Um, but that was a great thing to have happened. Have you been um, in touch since? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I should. You see, if I was a proper journalist, I'd be a bit <laughs> ring up and trying to get some scoops on something. But no. So that was a really great experience. But actually, the one, um, the one that I'm writing actually today is uh, with J.J. Abrams, the director of the new mm. Star Wars film. And he's not someone who is held up as being this kind of great, mysterious, auteur-like talent. You know, he's, he's, his job is the great rejuvenator of franchises, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, now Star Wars. Uh, but nobody has ever spoken to J.J. Abrams, that I found in cuttings anyway. Someone may, have, may well have done a good job of it, but nobody that I found had ever spoken to him like he was a proper filmmaker. It was always so, J.J., tell us a scoop on the latest Star Wars. Yeah. He's like, he, 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 no, I can't because, you know, it's all secret, blah, blah, blah. It's all this kind of very marketing-style interviews, which, you know, are fine in, in and of themselves. But I spoke to him, I think it was like two months before the, the final Star Wars film was, was, was even finished. So he was going to say nothing about that. So there was no point in kind of chasing the usual lines, you know, who dies or, you know, who left the script under the bed? Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, that was the that was the, the thing that's been doing the, the, the rounds on the talk shows. Um, but, you know, it, so it was a chance to speak to him as a human being and to kind of find out a bit about his, his life and, you know, how he... Because uh, he has this very interesting connection with Steven Spielberg. If you want to find out more, buy The Telegraph on Saturday. Um, but he he's never... He was sort of speaking in a way that I'd never heard him speak before. Mm. And that in itself is enormously gratifying because there was stuff he was talking about that seem to like crack open the very essence of who he is as a filmmaker, why he makes films and the way in which he makes films. And I think that's massively interesting. He's not Martin Scorsese, you know, but he's he is someone who has his own very distinctive approach and very distinctive style. I think he's actually a brilliant director as well. Um someone with a great visual sensibility that does hark back to that those those early Amblin films, you know, Spielberg and and and, and uh, of course early Star Wars as well, the proper Star Wars. Um so that was really satisfying because you just feel like you're talking to someone on a level that they've not been spoken to. And I don't mean, you know, a great kind of high-flown level where they're imparting great philosophical truths, but just getting something out of them that's not previously been got mm. is satisfying. And he probably felt flattered to be spoken to. Well, at the level. end, he did say, leave your details with my PR. And oh, did details. he? So, you know, it was, yeah. <laughs> so this is... The... So I think he enjoyed it. The yeah. thing is, a lot of film interviews now happen in what's called a junket which is sort of like journalistic speed dating in that someone will be plonked in a room and uh, they will be spoken to by a succession of journalists one after the other and you know you fight tooth and nail to not be in a junket situation if you're interviewing someone not because 
Um, I mean, it makes business sense to do them that way. But people get tired of just talking mm. and inevitably the same questions will come up again and again and the answers will get quite packaged. The worst thing you can hear as a journalist is when the talent says, yeah, so I actually just, I was asked this um, 10 minutes ago and you're just like, oh God. No, I know, I know. And, and it's, no, it's not their bad. fault. It's not I their know. fault, but it's, um, what was the one I did? Actually, weirdly, Ed Norton was, was an example that was in the paper at the weekend. Um, Edward Norton, sorry, that's ridiculously familiar. Um, <laughs> did you my old pal Ed. Uh, no, but actually, weirdly, I did a Q&A with him um, later, which was which which went, and he was like, yeah, anyway, um, so we did that. It was a, it was a kind of a semi-junket situation, but it was less formalised. Um, so it's kind of the responsibility is on the journalist to find a way to try and rattle them out of this routine, and not by being rude, I don't think. That um, does sometimes work. Though. Does sometimes yeah. work, and often this is what you see with the kind of viral video scene around film interviews now, is people just ask random questions to get bizarre answers or get them to do things like try chocolate bars, you know, you yeah. British snacks or something, just in order to kind of break the tedium and 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 get something some kind of human reaction out of them. Um, but yeah, but that's so that's that's always a tricky part of it is that you. It's it's very kind of mechanised now. This whole process. Have you ever tried one of those tricks? What to do? I mean, no. I, my my trick is to kind of obsessively prepare until I go half mad, <laughs> and then and and try and think up some kind of a and and just be knowledgeable. I think because it because because this the system is quite um, mechanical. I think people's preparation for it can be quite mechanical as well. And um, I have the great fortune of not doing an interview a day so you can you don't get numb to it you know yeah. even if the talent is numb to it you can come in and try and, and try and be a bit clever and, and 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 talk to them like they've maybe not been spoken to uh previously that day how much pressure do you feel as someone who's obviously working with a lot of ed- editors um to get the line you know get the news line to get the the quote that um everyone wants what particularly editors want because mm-hmm. it might be kind of the it might be talking about something to do with their personal life basically something a bit juicy and salacious yes and um it must be difficult i mean i felt it as well being like i've got to ask this question that i really don't want to ask and they're going to hate me at the end of it and it's going to ruin a really nice interview and you always have to mm-hmm. save it to the end because otherwise it kind of completely dismantles the interview before you got to the end but it does mean you leave with quite a sour taste in your mouth sometimes for both you and the talent how I do you feel that pressure? I think, I mean, to an extent, interviews are always transactional. And mm. I think if you come out feeling like you've had a chat with a friend, it's it's probably not gone as well as it should have done. Yes. Um, but, and and funnily enough, uh, you know, we were talking about the fact that I'd done graduate training on a, a tabloid. Yeah. The the pressure to come back with a line on absolutely everything is is kind of enormous. So you get used to the idea of trying to think, how can I, how can I get them to say something? But the thing is, a line to me, needn't be something salacious. It just has to be something grabby and interesting. And um, But it often has to be about the big buzz topics of the moment. So, for, you know, a few months ago, it was always Me Too, Weinstein. Yeah, but the thing is, you can talk about these without insulting someone. Yeah. And so a, a, a good example recently was um, I spoke to Jude Law about a film called Vox Lux, which is one of my favourite films of the year. It's this, 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 this great kind of parable of modern fame where you have Natalie Portman basically... Uh, 
she plays the, the the older version of the um the, 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 this this kind of uh, Lady Gaga like pop star. Yeah, I love but, that film. But the idea, right? Okay, so yeah, it was great. It, it, it didn't actually. It was it was kind of culty rather than this yeah. enormous success. But I I thought it was fantastic and spoke really really powerfully to to what it means to be famous now, and how fame and celebrity and kind of fun stories weirdly get mixed in with kind of paranoia and unease about the state of the world now. So like pre it's very like pre pre and post 9-11 film. So before September 11th you had serious news and you had celebrity news and one was the antidote to the other, right? And so they both operated kind of separately to each other and you would turn to one in order to be uh, you know, cured of an overdose to the to to, to, to the other. And now Everything, and this is thanks, I think, in part to social media and the fact that, you know, you turn on Twitter and on your feed, you have, you know, a terrorist attack overseas right next to here's the new Star Wars trailer. And the two weirdly become part of the same ecosystem. And it's very hard to extrapolate where sensible ends and stupid begins. And this is this film spoke very perfectly to that. Anyway, Jude Law plays the the manager of the of, of, of uh, Natalie Portman's um, star act in this. And he is someone whose experience of fame has exactly represented this because he became initially famous during the you know the Primrose Hill set years, New Labour, uh, Cool Britannia, and that that whole sort of North London thing. It was this sort of mini Hollywood Golden Age specific to London, which was incredibly exciting and glamorous. Um, Jude Law is I didn't even appreciate it at the time. Jude Law is ridiculously handsome. I mean, he is a total Can movie confirm. star, um, and. Um, then, of course, now he's, I mean, not that he ever had a period where he vanished, but he's now pursuing these kind of juicier, meatier character roles, you know, the playing the, the, the young Pope for Paolo Sorrentino, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And then and then um, popping up as uh, Dumbledore in the new, you know, the, the, um, the, the Harry Potter prequel series, uh, stuff that he would never have done previously. But these kind of interesting, naughty character parts that he can get into. So I sort of said, you know, the film is speaking to this. You've had personal experience of of, of this, uh, this idea of you know the being elevated by fame and then being burned alive by it. So you know, tell me about you know how that matches up with the film. And he was happy to talk about what is in inverted commas his personal life, but he was speaking to you know the substance of the movie, and he was bringing uh, he was able to bring a personal angle to that. So yeah, I mean. Ultimately, yeah, he did speak about himself in the interview, but it felt pertinent. And I think you just have to be a bit smart about it. And I'm not, you know, some big uh, line getter and will not yeah. come out of every interview with, with some, you know, great breakout news story piece that will, will, will match up with the thing. But I think you can you can get those without um, without insulting the, the, the person you're talking to. Yes, yes, that's true. And I would like to think he didn't show any resistance while we were talking. And I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm not sort of Mr. Hard Hitting. So if he had said to me during the interview, do you know what? Let's let's not go there. I would probably go, okay. <laughs> and then think of something else to talk about. But I think there was a, there was a reason to, to approach the, sop- the, the topic. And he responded to it very warmly at the time. He totally saw that it was relevant or, you know, certainly gave the, every impression of that. And was happy to talk about it. So I sort of felt at the end of that, yeah, it didn't run like a conversation between old friends. But I'm not old friends with you. I've never met the guy before. Are there any questions that you were like, okay, I'm going to go into this interview. I've got to ask this question. But you weren't able to because you were just, it was just too daunting. 
I don't think so. But then, uh, so here's here's an example is um, when I spoke to Joaquin Phoenix recently for for the Joker, mm. uh, he has never really prior to now spoken about his relationship with his brother, uh, River Phoenix, who of course died in incredibly awful circumstances, uh, very young. And I sort of thought, you know, to have him talk about his brother would be great because it's a very moving story. It's clearly influenced his craft as an actor because he's kind of, I mean, he's he's basically the, the, the definitive screen actor, male screen actor, certainly of our generation, I think. He's our De Niro anyway, uh, which is no mean feat. And I often get the impression from his performances that he's kind of almost acting for two. You know, he's he's doing the great work that his brother was unable to do. Um, so I feel it's relevant. However, he's... Also, and the sex cult was that they were in. Was oh, in yeah, yeah. So sure, that's a really over, interesting yeah. aspect of his upbringing as well. Um, but, the, uh, but, the, but, the, but the idea that he's kind of... He's he's standard bearing for himself and someone yeah. else. I think is it's first of all it's interesting and it's 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 a very human thing. You know you don't mm-hmm. have to be an actor to find that to to, to find that moving, and also uh, it's it's relevant to his, to his work. But I did sort of think this question is so phenomenally difficult to to pitch, and he doesn't know me from Adam, so there is no way into this that will not just cause a headache. And so I thought. On balance, this is not something that can be raised. He's he's like pointedly not spoken about it before. It's even something that I think journalists have previously been advised not to bring up because it's it's such a tough subject. Now he's subsequently actually in the in the awards tour for for Joker. He's he has brought it up himself, uh, not in interviews, but in when introing screenings of the film. He's he's spoken about how his brother. I think his brother sat him down and watched *Raging Bull* when he was small and said, "You know, this is the kind of stuff we mm. need to be doing." But that's him on his own terms. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anecdote. But what mm. what I mean is, it's 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 a subject that he's spoken about in public yeah. now. But I don't believe he'd spoken about it in public before this 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 particular award season. Um, I think that's right. Also, when it's someone's. If it's a relation and they've died, I do think death is, is very is, is different. You can't you can yeah, goodness, it's incredibly you can say tough. to an editor, I'm not asking that, and I think they should definitely be all right. Ah, uh-huh. but the, the, but you know the thing is, yeah. as, as I say, I do I do yeah. think it's relevant to his craft. This is not me kind of breezing and having dug up some, you know, miserable event from his childhood and yeah. saying, you know, what about this? Uh, it, it feels to me totally yes. pertinent to his work. Agreed. But the the actual. Um, the phrasing of it would be so impossible. I think, uh, I think you'd have to kind of just see if it naturally kind of came up. If he end. raised it, my yes. goodness, of course. Yeah. Talk about it as long as as yeah. long as he wants to talk about it. But um, yeah, to steer the conversation around to that, particularly when you have like an hour max with yeah. someone, you know, this is the kind of thing that you would broach with someone people. you'd mm. spoken to three or four times before, I think. And they knew that you weren't out to rile them up provoke them into saying something which then did happen with Joaquin Phoenix yeah right now and that was that was incredibly weird and and the 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 thing with the thing with that was I assumed beforehand that this question because so the question I asked him was it was to do with the fact that the the Joker film is so heavily inspired by Taxi Driver and Taxi Driver when it was released famously inspired someone to uh to well to, to 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 Shoot, try and shoot Ronald Reagan to assassinate Ronald Reagan and also to stalk Jodie Foster. 
um, which are two things that, I mean, it's not Reagan in the film, but it's a politician, two things that, 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 that happen in Taxi Driver. Now, clearly, that's not Taxi Driver's fault remotely. It's addressing stuff that's, that's in the air, and some lunatic has seen the film, and it's given, you know, shape to their malaise, their, their, their kind of uh, dis disgruntlement at the world. And they've seen themselves in that film, and they've decided to, to, to reenact what's in the film. Um, but I think if you're, and, and particularly with the, the way in which people are, fan bases are around comic book films, people do get insanely riled up by them and, and, and defensive of them. And, you know, uh, and the fact that there was the um, previous Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises, um, which I think is an exceptional film, and it's not the film's fault remotely, but someone chose a screening of that film mm. uh, to 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 um, to bring a gun to in, in, in the US and, and 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 open fire in the audience. So my question was, or it was meant to be, um, you know, did you or the director Todd Phillips did you ever discuss the fact that you know if you're if you're courting these themes with this film? Did you discuss the fact that there might be some kind of real world repercussions and they can be healthy real world repercussions when people kind of maybe adopt the, the clown mask? I mean, if, you, if you've seen Joker, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. They adopt the clown mask as a, a symbol of dissent. And, you know, they, this becomes something that turns up at um, potentially rallies or, uh, or protests or something in the same way the Guy Fawkes mask from V for Vendetta did uh, after that. So you have that. But then you also have the side where someone could potentially see the film and be inspired to do something awful. Now. As I say, this seems so kind of like right on the surface of what the film was about, what the film was speaking to, that I had assumed that he would have spoken through, you know, he'd at least been briefed by, um, by, by PR beforehand, you know, when this subject comes up, this is how we're going to tackle it. Because it's, it's, it's a difficult question, you know, um, but it's not a difficult question. It's not a nasty question um, or a trick question. I no, and it, you weren't implicating him in the response to the film's responsibility or the. No, of course not. Of course not. It's never. It's never the film's fault yeah. if, if if it does something like that. But I, I still think that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Of course, it happens all yeah. the time. You know, Fight Club. Some moron started up Fight Clubs. When Fight Club first screened, people saw it as being this. You know, some people saw it as being this pro-fascist tract. Mm. It was like it was promoting exactly the kind of thing it was undermining. Um, and blues. I mean, this is quite different. But with Blue Story, that's been. Yeah, right. Exactly. Issues, that, yeah, which is yeah. very unfortunate for the film. Yeah, and and it's it is it's it, it's terrible when that kind of thing happens. But but that, and it's never the responsibility of the filmmaker to self censor and say we're not going to talk about these issues on screen because it might cause trouble. Mm. Um, because a, a hugely important part of art is causing trouble. Um, but and you can't you know you then can't say oh we're going to cause this kind of trouble but not that kind of trouble. It, it's it's the responsibilities on the people who who. Um, who do these things and with them Kept alone. The security. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I still think it's an important thing to talk about. And I was amazed that it hadn't come. I do think actually the director, Todd Phillips, had reflected on this. I'm certain he'd reflected on this. And in fact, uh, in another interview, I think he gave to, to Total Film, he'd been asked the same question basically and spoke incredibly intelligently and articulately to it because he'd He'd, obviously, he'd written the thing with Taxi Driver partly in mind. Um, and it also referenced real world uh, stuff that had happened in New York in the 1980s when, you know, the whole kind of the city was 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 in total chaos. Uh, so he understood the, you know, the, the question, the intent of the question and, and the value of, of talking about it. Uh, and I think for whatever reason, Joaquin Phoenix, it just hadn't occurred to him that this was was ever 
you know, remotely connected to this project. And I think that that's interesting in itself because it shows how he approaches a role as an actor. He doesn't mm. think about it's all intuitive, you know. Uh, it's all about the chemistry of what happens on set between him, the camera, and the, and, the, and the director. Were you nervous before asking at all? Did you think it's such a legitimate question to ask that, of course, I'm going to ask? No, I wasn't nervous. I mean, I think when I listened back to the tape, I'd slightly garbled the... Um, I mean, it was it, the question took a while to ask because I was desperate to demonstrate that I wasn't asking it from a uh, a malicious point of view. But then in the end, that didn't really matter because he got up and walked out anyway. How How long did it take for him to get up and walk out? Maybe, I mean, it felt like maybe about half an hour, but I think it was in reality probably about 20 seconds. Um, and he, well, he just didn't say anything, just got up and... He just, well, he, he sort of said, uh, he was he was quiet for a long time and then he was like, kind of, why would you, why, like, almost as if he was wrestling with himself why someone would have ever raised this uh, in an interview. And then he kind of got up and sort of gave me this quite theatrical handshake and then and then left the room. I think it's quite sensible that he took a time out to think about it. Yeah, right. Now, I don't think this was a strop. I think he genuinely panicked mm. and he he knew it was a a difficult subject and he hadn't prepared for it at all and didn't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. So ran, basically. Um, and as I say, I'm astonished that it hadn't occurred to anyone that this is something that should be, you know, he should have... a. Not a canned response, but he should have something. Well, I also think it's sort of his responsibility to prepare for these interviews to some extent as much as you have. Well, not as much, but you have to. to yeah, like to be aware that you're going to be asked a range of things. And But the thing is, this is, again, it happened in a, a junket. And I was very fortunate yeah. this junket to have a, a big old chunk of his time. But I think he'd spent the whole day answering questions about, you know, so did you read the comics as a kid? And how did you yeah. lose all the weight? And all this kind of stuff, like the kind of normal foddery stuff for, for movie star interviews. And to have to grapple with something uh, of, you know, any substance whatsoever, was it was maybe the first time he'd been asked that day to, to do that. How um, did it make you feel? I was initially horrified because, as, as I say, I'm not a big, tough interviewer at all. And having been flown halfway around the planet, because this happened in L.A., um, to talk to someone about an enormously anticipated film who, as I say, I enormously admire as an actor, and be granted an hour of their time and then for this to go sour you know, in the first 25 minutes is a disaster because there was not enough. Even if it was, even if the piece then became just the story of when Joaquin Phoenix walked out, there was 20 minutes of, of quotes, maybe 25 minutes of quotes to use. And it couldn't be the piece it needed to be, which was the magazine cover story, which is maybe 3,000 words. So I initially thought, what an enormous waste of everyone's time and money um, and really panicked. So went out and actually to kind of reaffirm to myself that it had happened, I then sort of saved the voice recording as Joaquin Phoenix brackets walked out um, just to kind of, I, I don't know, kind of ground the experience in some kind of reality. And then went out to find someone from the studio to, to kind of say, look, this has taken a really nasty turn and I just wanted to work out what we do next. And he was already talking to someone. And then there was this very, very long sort of, off the record discussion about, you know, to get to the intent behind the question. Were the PRs annoyed at you? Was there not someone sitting no, in? No, they weren't. They weren't. There was nobody sitting in because generally that's that's not good um, because it just is not real, no. is it? Um, it becomes a slightly promotional exercise and not a conversation. But, and so nobody, nobody was sitting in. Um, 
And because it was off the record, I'm not going to then sort of rehearse what was said. But there was, you know, other parties were brought in and it was established that this was a legitimate area of inquiry. And it was not, I mean, as maybe wouldn't have happened if I'd asked a question about his brother, for example. Um, And he, I think, came to accept that. And we then sat down and resumed the interview and got to the end of the hour. And I was, you know, I felt terrible because I don't want to go into an interview and Mm. make the person giving it feel like they've kind of been stitched up. Uh, And I think that's what he initially felt. And he never actually really answered the question. No, he didn't. But I don't think he did have an answer for it. And I was really, really keen to talk to uh, Todd Phillips on the record, the director, to get his take on why he wouldn't have had that answer prepared. Because Phillips, having spent, you know, however many months on set with this guy, knows how he works. And I think he could have given a really interesting, insightful response to why it is that this was not the way that Phoenix approached this character. Um, in the end, he was too busy. Uh, it was it was like a matter of maybe two weeks before the Venice premiere. Oh, fair Everyone enough. was kind of working around the clock on this thing Do and you... he just didn't have time to, to get on the phone and, and, and discuss it, which I am sad about because... And you kind of present this to the studio as well and you say, look, this is the way that... to If you're worried about this interview being framed as like, you know, oh, he walked out, ah. Oh then you, you know, you bundle in some more supporting information and, you know, then it becomes the story of why he walked out rather than that he did walk out. But I think the way that I wrote it up in the end, I didn't feel like I was kind of turning the guy over. It, it felt like it was just an honest account of what happened. Absolutely. And um, Would you have taken it back if since you, do you, would you have, yeah, would you have turned back the clock and not asked that question if you could? No, of course not. I would have turned back the clock and got someone at Warren Brothers to brief him about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the... But do you, but, but part of the piece of success was the fact that you could then bill it as Joaquin Phoenix walked out of this interview. Yeah, right, yeah. But I would have viral. I would have rather he had given a smart answer. So you'd rather he hadn't walked out and just answered it. I don't know. I don't know. Because if I, I, do, I, I know walked it, out I, and Obviously, back clearly and you want lots of people to read what you yeah. write. Okay, so the viral aspect of it, yes, is nice. Um... But then you sort of want people to take... But then I think we were able to... Well, maybe not. Maybe maybe it worked out for the best, weirdly. It worked didn't out feel very like, well for Telegraph. It didn't feel like it worked out for the best at the time. I didn't actually feel like it worked out for the best until it was published. Yeah. Um, because the write-up was misery. I mean, it was awful. It was one of the worst writing jobs oh, I've really? ever done. Because it was a great piece. It was, well, thank you. I'm, 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 I'm very glad, but it took a lot of smashing about to I mean and the notes I can imagine from, where you put how, do you start with that anecdote well you, you have to start with it because yeah. otherwise I mean otherwise imagine kind of reading like 1,000 words into a piece oh and then he walked out <laughs> what you have to start with that because that's what that's what matters yeah but then you have to kind of unpick and, and, and understand why it happened and you know this is we, we spoke earlier about feedback from editors you know the the amount of kicking around this piece got from uh, the, um, the, the the people who were editing on the Mac was invaluable because it needed someone with a bit of distance on it to say, right, okay, we're saying this. Now we need to say this. Now we need to do that. We need some kind of substance here. You know, we need some kind of showbizy stuff here to kind of lighten it up. And it's getting that distance on it that you as a writer will never, ever have is is so important. There was, um, you know, some people criticised a journalist asking that question and that it was not a journalist's... uh, 
it was not up to Janice to ask that question then, that Joaquin Phoenix should never have been asked that question because why should he have an answer? And as you say, the film has no responsibility when it comes to how an audience reacts to it. Mm -hmm. What would you what do you think about that? <laughs> the stupid. I mean, come on. <laughs> what a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Why would why would that not be of interest? Yeah, I mean I don't know. Well, I guess because they just think, what, what answer could he possibly have? Well, that's why you ask them, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's 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 so daft to think, you know, interviews, particularly arts interviews, are not about holding people to account. You know, yes. you're not talking to them like politicians and saying, you know, if you spend X amount on, you know, early years care, where's that money coming from? That's That's not the purpose of these things. The purpose for me, and this is, as I say, from the enormous fortune of working for a newspaper that actually cares about arts journalism and will give you space to dig into films and, 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 and anything else really that, you know, in, in, a, in a way that's hopefully intelligent and, and enlightening as well as entertaining to, to readers, is that you can tackle these things. But, you know, it's that's what's that's what's kind of fascinating about art is that you can you can talk about these issues and the fact that you wouldn't talk about them because they're difficult is nuts. I mean, if you're not going to talk about them because it's it's actively unpleasant for the person you're talking to, to to go through it, like the kind of the tougher personal experience stuff that might not be relevant to the to the film at hand. Um, yeah, of course, uh, I see every every reason for not asking those questions. But you know, it's it's interesting. It's like with the the, the Woody Allen situation with Scarlett Johansson in interviews, kind of sticking up for Woody Allen, and saying, mm. "Look, ultimately, we will never know the truth of this situation," which is the case, you know. Um, however much people want to simplify that and sand the edges off. That's a particularly, like, uniquely toxic family situation that we will never know the truth of. So, sorry, you know, everyone has to live with that and, yeah. and just get on with their lives. Scott Johansson has, I think, very, with, with great dignity, said that's how things are. Her having worked with the guy a number of times and knowing what she knows about him, uh, she's happy to stand by him. Um, you know... That's great that she's she's saying that in interviews and that she's not kind of worrying about what kind of adverse effect that will have on her Oscar campaign or her, her career because she's right, you know. Um, but I don't think people are asking that question to catch her out because she's happy to talk about mm, it. Exactly. And as you say in your comment piece about it, that's actually the most, that's the toughest thing she can do is not go with the crowd and just announce him like everyone else. Of is. course. But then I think other people like, you know, someone like Greta Gerwig who worked with Woody Allen when she was not famous at all and now really regrets at having come to learn more about mm. the case. I think that's that's perfectly reasonable reaction as well because she's looked at the available information and decided that, you know, this is not a decision that she's happy that she made and she wouldn't make it now. Fine, great, and, 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 and well done for saying that as well. What I sort of have less time for is people trying to triangulate their way through it and, you know, without... Trying Absolutely. to trying to say something that sounds, you know, for want of a bit. Well, no, I'm not going to say woke because woke is so kind of cliched <laughs> and awful. But they will try and say something that that sounds like the right kind of noises, but actually doesn't contain any substance at all. Um, I think anyone who in an interview is prepared to sort of, you know, put their their own kind of ethical calculations on the line and say this is how I arrived at the position I did. Um, I've got an enormous amount of time for that. And. Final question, Robbie. Have you ever thought about, or is this something you're potentially working on, screenwriting? No. Oh. No, goodness, I've got no interest in writing. I don't want to make films. Never? No. No. Do I love I love films, but I don't want to make one. And you've never been approached to work kind of on the other side? 
No, because I just don't think it's what critics do is relevant to that. Mm. You know, there was um, Kim Newman, who is a tremendous critic who who writes for Empire Magazine, has been writing for Empire Magazine for as long as I've been reading Empire Magazine, once told me that the it's it's not a critic's job to understand the amount of hard work that goes into making a film. It's a critic's job not to care. Yes. That's and good. that's good. totally good. right. Because who are you writing these things for anyway? You know, they're not school reports. It's not, you know, <laughs> a, a, a C plus in PE or whatever. Um, obviously, if a director reads a review and thinks you, you know, you kind of got to the essence of what they're doing, that's nice. But you're writing it for people who go to the cinema or who are, you know, looking for something to watch on And as on Michael streaming. Deacon was saying about Clive... Um, Clive James. James, he said that reviews, as Clive James always wrote them to be, should if rival, if not surpass the entertainment it's reviewing. Of course. Which I think was a very good way of... Yeah, no, no, that's it. absolutely right. And, and and they should... A lot of pressure on the right. They though. should be... Well, they should be worth reading in and of themselves, yeah. even if you have no intention to, uh, see, the to see the film at exactly. all. Now, this is something Anthony Lane at The New Yorker, who's one of my mm, kind of brilliant. idol critics... Uh, IDOL is 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 one of the greats at this because I will read. I mean, I'm, I'm this is slightly ridiculous because I'm seeing all the films anyway, but I would read anything Anthony Lane wrote on because it was Anthony Lane writing because I want to read his work. You know, yeah. I want to read what he has to say about anything and the way. Actually, more importantly, the way in which he says it. Um, and I think that's what I sort of aim to do as well is write something that even if you have no interest, will still be worth reading. And this is, again, why I say it's so useful to have the input of editors, is that they are the people who say, hold on a minute, what do you mean? You know, what are you, when you say this, what are you referring to? People who know what you're talking about will know, but people who don't might not. Yeah. And if you lose someone, like, that's incredibly depressing, to think someone could read three lines into your piece and then go, Just... And then move on to something else. Well, I don't think that's a problem that you have, Robbie. So congratulations on all your <laughs> oh, brilliant pieces shucks. that you've Thank you. that you've talked about here. And I think that's all we've got time for. Although we could talk about it, we could talk for much longer. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Hello, it's us again with an update from our lives. How Elliot. are you? You're you're taking the initiative. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I tried to say it over you so that I didn't have to speak. <laughs> Ellie's again, like, erasing herself. Uh, I'm fine. I've had a very busy day because uh, I'm going on holiday tomorrow. Where are you going? I'm going to Scotland uh, on a kind of quasi-writer's retreat thing. and I'm doing some climbing, which should be fun. Lovely. Uh, you do like a mountain. We know that. <laughs> these are different mountains. Though. Smaller, but with worth, worse weather. Uh, so that should be fun. But well, I think this is the challenge of going on holiday when you're freelance to trying to, like, wrap various things up before you go and stuff. Did you, did you get your pitch into the FT? I did, and they didn't take it. Oh. You cursed it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, they had done a, a story that was too similar to it before. We can't edit this out because I think it's good for our listeners to know that you do get rejected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get rejected all the time. Um, yeah, no, I got a gracious email after I had chased the editor twice. Um, what would you say is too many times chased? I run them down till they answer, but not everyone agrees with that. God. So how many cha- What's the most amount of chases you've sent? I would... Be candid. Always. Um, once I've been ghosted for a week, I will email them again if I haven't after another week I'll email again and then I'll call and then I'll keep calling until I get an answer 
how many years could this go on for? I mean, months, potentially. <laughs> but it, it's a training exercise, though. Because once they know that that's what's going to happen, it's obviously in their interest to provide a rapid answer. Yeah, that's true. If you become known for being a massive pest, they're but, going but to. But a massive pest, but always extremely polite. Yeah. That's the key thing. And if they say no, that's absolutely fine. You know, so I think the basic rule is like, if they say no, you, you very gracefully off, yeah. you very gracefully say thank you. Do you try and trick them by saying I've had interest from this rival title? No, not really. I mean, if unless I had, I mean, I think there is the question of do you do you pitch in series or in parallel? Yeah, I would generally do it in series. I would say um, I just remember it's very quite straightforward, really. Interesting. Um, what would you say was your pitch success rate? About one in five. This is a double interview. This, this is, is a double me interview. interviewing Robbie and Simon. Uh, it depends, like maybe one in five. But the key is to, from my Scandinavian life coach, which he made me do it, was to pitch. You have a Scandinavian life coach? Yeah. We discussed it before. We have can, we? Uh, off air, I think so, yeah. Um, it's, it's off air, doesn't count. doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> it's to pitch a story every week. So that you're constantly like... Flexing your pitching muscles. Throwing darts at the board. Yeah. And then stuff comes back. Anyway. God, how exhausting. Yeah, but, you know, it beats a real job. Um, <laughs> is, that a, is that shade on my job? <laughs> my office um, job. How are you? I'm very well. I am... Have you been ignoring freelancers' emails? Yes. God, actually, I am quite bad at that. I can imagine, yeah. Uh, generally, if I'm ignoring them, they're not good. Right. But you would just you would just ghost them? No, I need to get better at that. It's really bad at this so next yes. use. I'm also just... Uh, but are the numbers overwhelming? They're overwhelming. And, and also, if, if you're pitching me saying, I'd love to run, to, to interview this celebrity, then that's I'm not a week, going, yeah, to, that's a week I'm not going yeah. to apply. And also, if you haven't checked the Telegraph website and we've literally run the same story two days before, I'm not going to apply. Okay. Also, if you call me Helen or Matthew, I'm not going to apply. I mean, these are high bars you're setting for like, <laughs> getting an, answer, an email from Ellie Halls. <laughs> I, you, I'm often called the wrong name. What, if, I, they, what if they call you babe? Then, De- not, then they can have my number. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, not, not in the um, not in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> that strategy is no longer allowed. I've also had one freelancer. Um, after I edited him, I spent ages editing him, and he went into the you know how I edit. I always edit in a Google Doc, so it's collaborative. And he went and so, um, so it appears collaborative. <laughs> and he um, he went back and reverse changes. That's naughty. And it's like, mate, I can see track all changes i could see everything we're on a google doc <laughs> so he was never commissioned again cold yeah. is there a list of like people to ignore pinned to your commissioning desk there's, there's a mental blacklist yeah okay no i'm joking no it's, i'm not it's joking. long but distinguished <laughs> well god i think that's just quite useful though this our first outro that was probably any use to anyone it's been, to any listeners it's been, it's been bluntly frank <laughs> Kanja from both sides. Yeah. Anyway, um, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Oakham. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our uh, graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. Please do rate, review, and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And also, you can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Uh, always Take Notes on Facebook and Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do think about uh, contributing lavishly on Patreon at Always Take Notes. Thank you.